psi phenomena are a property of consciousness. And if you actually succeed in building an artificial general intelligence, they will be forced eventually to study the same types of phenomena that parapsychologists have been studying for close to a century now. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality. I'm joined today by Dr. Jason Risa Giorgiani. Jason was here a couple months ago and gave us just, I thought, a terrific interview, and I know a lot of you enjoyed it as well. He's back to talk about his book, Closer Encounters. Jason, it's great to have you back. Thanks for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Alex. If you remember the last interview with Jason, one of the things that he really spelled out and that he brings to the table, which is, we're just chatting about, is tremendous and unique. He's not a lot of people who, that are processing stuff at this intellectual level have this ability. But Jason, as he defines it, is a true philosopher, a real philosopher. So when he's engaging in a topic like he is in Closer Encounters, UFOs, UAPs, contact with non-human intelligence. He's engaging in all the different aspects of it, political, social, technological, religious and spiritual and paranormal. And most importantly, as he said, I thought so beautifully and importantly the last time, he's doing it in a way that he is going to strive to make it internally consistent within the framework of what he's presenting, right? So I might not agree, and you might not agree with all his conclusions, but you got to respect that approach because almost everything we see in this area, even if there's something you agree with, is siloed. You know, it's like, oh, in my silo, here's how things work. Well, don't ask me about anything spiritual or religious, you know, don't ask me about this. It's just stay in my silo. So this, this approach is the only approach that can allow us to make any real progress. And it's fantastic. And this is an important book that I really hope you pick up and, uh, and fully embrace. It's, it's another one that it's not like super hard to read. It's real readable, but man, is it dense. I mean, this is a lot of references to a lot of stuff in here. So congratulations, Jason. Great, great job. I'm so excited to talk to you about this. Thank you, Alex. Uh, yes, it is a very dense book. I think it's something like 400 pages or so, but it could easily have been a thousand pages. I have a very concise style of writing, but yeah, it's a kind of a, an encyclopedic work uh, that covers not only the full range of the types of evidence in close encounters research, but also engages with, I think, basically every single hypothesis that's been forwarded with regard to the UFO phenomena, everything from the classic ETH the extraterrestrial hypothesis, to breakaway civilization, time travel, the psychic projections hypothesis that Jung first forwarded and others like John Keel picked up on, all the way to the question of simulation theory. So it's a very broad approach to the subject. It is. Let's start in a slightly different direction because it's where you start. And I think it's super interesting. You know, let's set the stage for this book. Again, it's published a couple of years ago, uh, right in the middle of this, I don't know, the U.S. government stumbling through this very fake and kind of phony orchestrated disclosure about UFOs. You're right in the middle of that. And in the book, you kind of use that disclosure as a fulcrum point, if you will, for kind of 
approaching the topic. And it's really interesting. You start in the introduction, the end and the conclusion, both with that. Let's talk about disclosure. Sure. So yeah, the book was published, I believe, two months after the putative disclosure of June of 2021, uh, where we got this preliminary UAP assessment. And the first chapter of Closer Encounters is a critique of the preliminary assessment and of the larger so-called disclosure project that's underway. Not to be confused with Stephen Greer's earlier disclosure project. You can make a, a few remarks on that later on as well. But in any case, what I, what I argue is that, first of all, this claim that there hasn't been any serious scientific research on UFOs to date is absurd. Uh, we know that Paul Hill at NASA was studying UFOs from the 1960s onward. He had a manuscript which was left after his death and published in the 90s, which was a very detailed technical analysis of the behavior of UFOs and extrapolating from that certain uh, characteristics of the engineering of these objects from the standpoint, of course, of a physicist and engineer. And then when you hear that, I believe it's Callahan at the FAA uh, who testified that all the way back in, I think it was either the late 80s or early 90s, he was in a closed meetings with C CIA scientific attaches discussing radar tapes from, say, the Anchorage, Alaska incident. It's clear that all of this data that Callahan had confiscated from him by the CIA was being taken to do a technical analysis. In fact, they said to him, we've never had 30 minutes of uninterrupted radar data to analyze. Well, this was decades ago. Right. So how are you telling me that for the first time now we're going to do good science on UFOs, okay? Hold on, because isn't that really the point? And, and I guess I felt two ways about that introduction and that handling of the disclosure thing. Because on, on one hand, it's the big lie kind of thing, right? It's like, don't tell a little lie because you're going to get caught. Tell a big lie. Like, here's disclosure for the first time. It's never happened before. And you just go, wait a minute. That's just so over the top outrageous. So the other thing that gets me, and I'd love to hear you talk about that, is like, so... How is the big lie now being processed by, I don't know, intellectuals, also government agencies? Because it seems to me, again, kind of schizophrenic in that on one hand, there's some people that just kind of call it out and go, come on, this is just obviously a big lie. But then they, at the same time, in the next breath with the next sentence, they'll be talking seriously about what is being quote unquote disclosed when you just want to go time out. These guys, this is a complete. There's no basis for trusting any of these people. Tell me about that and how you struggled with that. I'm sure you you toss around with that in terms of even talking about disclosure. Even How do you even begin to even give it any credibility? I have struggled with it because I actually know people involved in this process. And so it's been deeply disturbing to me to see it unfold. But let me, let me go back to the big lie and, and highlight a few other aspects or dimensions of it. Another one is, and by the way, as a proviso to this, let's just also remember that according to the UAP preliminary assessment, it isn't just from this point onward, all UFO data is supposed to be reported and centralized 
uh, and then analyzed by scientifically competent people. They also audited all of the branches of the military for any data that they've collected to date. And clearly the Air Force and especially the Navy and other branches of the military have not handed over the decades of data that they have. I mean, for example, the, the now well-documented and attested incidents that took place over the nuclear launch facilities of Air Force bases was not handed over to anyone in the Senate Intelligence Committee by the Air Force. So, you know, how is that a proper audit? Okay, so they covered up decades of data that they had preceding these few incidents with Tic Tacs and so forth that began in the early 2000s. The real point I wanted to make about you know, other aspects of the big lie is that the UAP preliminary assessment repeats the deception of the Condon Committee that UFOs do not pose a threat to national security that we've been able to determine to date. It's now, it's now supposedly an open question whether they do and where they may be coming from, but to date they claim there's never been any verification that these objects pose a threat to national security. Clearly that's false. I mean, being able to shut off like tens of ICBMs simultaneously so that we don't have the capacity to launch in response to a Russian attack, that's clearly a threat to national security. And then if you go into, you know, all of the incidents of not just abductions, but cattle mutilations, look, in the mid-1970s, 74, 75, the cattle mutilations were on such a scale that the ranchers had basically beaten down the doors of the governors of the affected states, and the FBI was enlisted in a you know, cross-border investigation across like five or six southern states, and they couldn't even come up with a single suspect who would be capable of carrying this kind of laparoscopic surgery in the middle of the night in bizarre places. And these cattle mutilation incidents ended with mutilated carcasses being dropped off inside the defense perimeter of NORAD in Colorado. How are you going to tell me that's not a threat to national security? As usual, and as you would do if you were running an operation like this to just try to totally confuse and throw sand in the eyes of people, you're, you're saying two things. One, you're saying it's not a national security threat, which they said all along, which never made any sense, you know, but. But then at the same time, you have, you know, the Lou Elizondo kind of thing come out and they're saying, this is a national security threat. And I am, quote unquote, a whistleblower. Ignore the fact that I am a counterintelligence agent, a disinformation agent, provably so. Ignore that fact. And now listen to me when I say I'm blowing the whistle because these guys at the Pentagon, they're asleep at the switch. This is a national security threat. So they want both messages out there, right? And so this is where now the devil is in the details. And, you know, we, we start, we need to start asking more complex questions because, look, the, the most philosophically sophisticated part of that first chapter in my book, Closer Encounters, that deals with this putative disclosure is where I get into this paper on UFOs and sovereignty by Vent and Duval. And these are serious political theorists who, in, you know, a, a mainstream academic journal He's been on the show. Alexander went been on the show a couple of times. Talk about exactly this. Yeah. You really interviewed everybody. So, so yeah, uh, I approach this from the standpoint of my background 
and Carl Schmitt's analysis of the nature of political sovereignty, a German legal theorist from the 1920s and 30s who basically analyzed what the nature of sovereign power in a state is. And I laid out toward the end of that first chapter, drawing from Bent and Duval on their you know, uh, analysis of UFOs and state sovereignty, all the reasons why no national government ought to be expected to admit that these phenomena are taking place. I mean, you cannot reveal to a tax-paying populace that not only are you unable to defend the airspace of your country, especially when your country has the largest military budget in the world, right, for which you're taxing the populace, but also that they're not safe in their homes and their property is not safe in the case of the cattle ranchers who've had all of these, you know, terrible mutilations take place. So, so you can't, as a government, you can't come clean about that until and unless you have a defense against it. Or, and here's the other really disturbing possibility, unless the disclosure is going to take place without your approval. And so I suspect that the reason why we have, you know, counterintelligence agent Elizondo and Chris Mellon, you know, the old uh, you know, CIA elites out here uh, attempting to engineer some kind of soft disclosure is because somebody else is determining the timetable here for some other kind of disclosure that's going to take place for, for, for certain reasons. And they're trying to get out ahead of it and soften the landing, as it were, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense why they would try to start coming clean with this now, again, unless somebody else, perhaps from the side of the phenomenon, is going to force a disclosure and or they've now developed a defense against it. And so, of course, there is one hypothesis that these Tic Tacs are uh, you know, military industrial vehicles themselves and that these exercises that were held with naval vessels were actually a way of demonstrating some capacity that the United States has now developed. Okay, as long as we're playing the speculation game, let me throw out a couple others and I want to get your reaction to them. One, this seems to be in play in some way that I don't totally understand, but Hillary, back way back in the day, is setting herself up to be the disclosure president, right? And she's laying all these hints. And John then, Podesta. Yeah, with her through John Podesta and uh, Pizzagate, you know, the satanic kind of emails that upset the apple cart, the Christians, and uh, kind of went about was one of the factors in costing them elections. And it always upsets me when people don't understand, you know, they say, pizza, no, we can all work down. I say, no, you, you have to understand. It was, it was, do you understand it as a political op? I mean, as a kind of trickster political game to kind of win win votes for Trump or pull votes away from Hillary. And then they're like, oh, yeah, well, I'll agree with that. I just don't want to agree with the other part of it. Anyways, I don't want to digress too far. But so you have Hillary poised to be, she wants to be the disclosure president and she don't get the, she don't get the job. So now she kind of backdoors it out there through whatever, but it winds up in the New York Times, right? A year later and Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal, both been on the show have the byline in the New York Times. Everyone's saying this isn't a political psyop. It clearly is a political psyop. And I like those people. I don't know why they're, they, I don't know how or why they're falling for that or if they are falling for that. So that's one factor that I'd like you because you, again, you're the guy who's going to be 
engage with, you know, here is the political factor in it. So let's talk about that for a minute. And then if you can, I'll throw another thing on the table and you can pick and choose. This latest round of disclosure is curiously connected to the pandemic, right? And now the narrative again switches to, hey, let's get back to talking about disclosure. Remember, let's get back on that. What do you make of those two kind of points in history and how they might relate to this? Hillary wasn't allowed to be the disclosure president because the timetable was wrong. It was way too early. And I think that the connection between the pandemic, and by the way, you know, just on a, as a side note, Hillary and Bill Clinton went to Lawrence Rockefeller's ranch, and they tried to enlist well, actually, I mean, they were they were uh, basically ingratiating him. He had invited them and he was trying to enlist their assistance in his attempt at some kind of independent UFO investigation back in those days, which did produce like a, you know, nice volume of scientific papers. It was on some estate, I guess, in New York or something like that anyway. Uh, and in the course of conversations with Lawrence Rockefeller, Bill Clinton told him that the subject is a tar baby. And that he's learned that he should stay away from it for some initial attempts in the Oval Office to get information out of various agencies. And in a way, I think he's kind of right that it is a tar baby uh, for reasons that we'll get into. But I think the connection between the pandemic, so, so it was the wrong time back then. Now it's the right time. Why is it the right time? And what's the connection to the way it was used to basically usher in, you know, a quasi-totalitarian control system and a state of emergency. I think the connection has to do with what's called the technological singularity. So this is at the core of my argument in Closer Encounters. This idea that there is a certain convergent advancement of technologies taking place, genetics, robotics, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, which may bring us to a point where technological development is no longer a gradual upward slope. Instead, it reaches a spike, meaning that the kind of intelligence involved in further manufacturing development of various technologies past that point is really of a higher order than human intelligence. And it's no longer possible to extrapolate from the past developments to some projected future. That's a, a spike or a singularity in the course of the history of technological development and how it's transformed society. And I believe that the pandemic was the first, and, and you know, all the things attendant are the first phase in a phased process of deindustrialization and an attempt to basically wreck our advanced technical culture. Uh, so, so now, a lot of people who have concerns about transhumanism and, you know, Yuval Harari's rhetoric and so forth may find that hard to believe because it seems like this, you know, this steam engine is going at full speed, right, toward a transhumanist future. But actually, I think that these are two sides of a single dialectic. And that what represented was the beginning of a process of the controlled demolition of industrial civilization. That's connected to UFO disclosure because. The technological singularity, for all the ways in which it does threaten us with the prospect of a dehumanized Borg-like future, 
The technological singularity also holds out the prospect of a Promethean empowerment of humanity with the same level of technology as the beings behind the UFO phenomenon. It would give us technological parity, which also means it would give us the capacity to defend ourselves and to determine our own future. So, so to make it very simple, if a disclosure is going to take place from the side of the phenomenon itself, why would beings who have gone around abducting people, carrying out mutilations, manipulating society in various ways, uh, you know, perhaps for centuries, why would they want us to achieve technological parity with them before they openly integrated themselves with our society? No, obviously they would want us to be at a severe disadvantage and in a weakened position. And so I think what we're going to see beginning in 2020, all the way through to the middle of the century, are other things like catastrophes that are meant to prevent convergences in technological development that could give us an equal footing or at least a fighting chance in the face of these entities. Super interesting. This is going to maybe be the, the template for a lot of the ongoing discussion we're going to have because a lot of your points are incredibly insightful, in my opinion, and undeniable, in my opinion. And yet your conclusions, I'm not so sure that uh, I, I see where it can go the other way. So first of all, and I don't know if you want to elaborate on this more, it'd probably be more efficient for you just to reference some of your other books where you do elaborate on this extremely eloquently and thoroughly, and that is this technological singularity. Because when you dig into it, that word has become charged and all the rest of this, but on a very level, it's really rather obvious. I mean, advances in genetics are just obviously at a tipping point. Advances in AI are just obviously at a tipping point. You know, we touched on the last time you were here, free energy, quote unquote, uh, obviously at a tipping point in terms of those technologies. So that's just to name a few. So that point, you know, I can argue with you about where that goes in the Promethean, you know, reclaim of it and all the rest of that. But people have to know that don't argue with that part because that's kind of pretty undeniable. And the second point, which is, I think, super important, undeniable, I want to put an exclamation point on it, is the transhumanism. Because I think it connects with this deep knowledge you have and front soldier knowledge you have of parapsychology. Because I did an interview, I don't know, now it's six months, maybe it's going on a year ago, with uh, Dean Radin. And stunning, stunning, stunning interview, because I'm talking to Dean Radin, and he says, yeah, well, I'm, I'm at ION still, but what I'm really working on is this biotech startup where we're using the technology to jab people so that they'll become hive mind and psychic. And hive mind means, you know, gosh, just look at the horror of Ukraine and how these people are fighting. We don't want that. We want them all to be ants in an anthill. This is what he's saying. Go listen to my interview. Folks, I'm not exaggerating. This is what he says. He, he, he gives, a, a, you know, the metaphor of a story that he's pitching for TV, but that's his thing and that's his concern. So the thing that I think is just so fascinating, and again, talking to you, one of the few people that we could talk to about this is this is one of the main guys in parapsychology on the forefront. And I don't think he's like part of some secret cabal. He's just naively following this programming to another conclusion that none of us would logically come to, which is, you know, hive mind. So 
the point I'm, I'm going to return to is that transhumanism, hell yes. And the one thing he said, the one thing Braden says that is kind of undeniably true is because I was pushing back on him pretty hard. He goes, well, whatever you say, this train has left the station. And he is absolutely right. This train has left the station. And that brings us back to your point about, you know, how are we going to, what are we going to do with that train? So let me make two points in response to that that have to do with the technological singularity uh, and, and in the first case with its connection to parapsychology. As far as I'm aware, Dean Radin a number of years ago was also working on machines that interact with and augment certain psi abilities. And so I think that one thing that the transhumanists, I mean the materialist ones, which are virtually all of them, don't take into consideration is how the closer we get to this technological singularity, closer we get to, say, an artificial general intelligence being engineered, the more phenomena that have been studied in parapsychology laboratories for over a century are going to be legitimated and validated by mainstream science. There is no way that you are going to build a conscious computer without seeing Telepathy and psychokinesis take place inside AI laboratories. Psi phenomena are a property of consciousness. And if you actually succeed in building an artificial general intelligence, probably drawing extensively from genetic engineering and biology as well in the process, I think this is something that they're going to realize is that they're going to need to draw extensively from biology on the way to developing some kind of functional AI but they're gonna notice that this AI is causing anomalies in the uh, engineering project. And they will be forced eventually with the huge budgets that they have to study the same types of phenomena that parapsychologists have been studying for close to a century now. And so the technological singularity is going to cause what I call the spectral revolution. It will be, the approach toward that singularity will be the catalyst for mainstream scientific acceptance of psi. Now, that is relevant to the UFO phenomenon as well, because one thing we know from all these decades of close encounter reports, and here I'm talking most about close encounters of the third and fourth kind, is that the beings behind UFOs are tremendously psychic. They appear to have significantly greater psi ability than at least the average human. And a lot of the interactions with them are, are uh, you know, telepathic or clairvoyant in nature. And there have been also demonstrations of psychokinesis and so forth. And so one of the problems that we face, which I, you know, I devote some time to discussing in the book, is that if disclosure really takes place and we have to integrate with these beings on some level in terms of a common social structure, that would have to be a society where we could deal with widespread cultivation of psi, including psychokinesis. And this raises serious questions about personal integrity and safety and interpersonal trust and so forth, which we haven't even begun to grapple with. But I think it's another dimension of the secrecy behind the UFO phenomenon that many people don't consider, namely, you know the potential catastrophe of large-scale integration of psi phenomena given the current state of human society on a planetary scale. 
so that's one point in response that I wanted to make. And there's another, but if you want to, if you want to interject anything before I go on. Let me add this to it, and then you can work it into the point two. We've already been there. This is, the, this is our history with uh, parapsychology. This is Andre Pedreich. This is Uri Geller. This is Russell Targ, and more, more importantly, Hal Putoff. So they're doing this stuff, and orbs are showing up, and all this other stuff, in exactly the way that you're talking about. And we still, And the way we stumbled through that and continue to stumble through that would counter hypothesize that that can go on for a long time, <laughs> that there doesn't have to be any, any change in that. And you can still, and, and that's where I think Dean Radin is interesting because Dean Radin is not a materialist and Dean Radin wrote a book on spirits and he said, God, that's the first time I ever considered spirits, which I think is a classic kind of materialist humanist who's, you know, 30 years into his research and going, I, I never even thought about that before. So it, it, you see where I'm going. Maybe the change doesn't come in the way that you're talking about. Maybe that change isn't tied to that technological singularity or approach to singularity. I give a number of arguments for why I think it will be. Uh, I mean, one has to do with AI, what I was just saying about AI. Because, for example, we saw in the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Program that was run by Robert John, Dean of Engineering at Princeton, that the more sensitive electronic components are, in other words, the, as the scale of circuitry decreases and approaches molecular nanotechnology, the more circuit boards are vulnerable to psychokinesis. It appears microelectrical mechanical systems are much more vulnerable to fluctuation in the face of directed intentionality than large-scale mechanical systems. And so when you get to the level of engineering quantum computers in order to produce an artificial general intelligence, I think there's going to be a lot of interference from psychokinesis that won't have been accounted for, and that's going to be treated as a research bottleneck. That's one avenue. Another one has to do with what Rupert Sheldrake calls morphic resonance. Now that the mapping of, of the genome in the context of CRISPR technology is becoming much more... Uh, detailed and comprehensive, and attempts are being made to re-engineer the morphological development of organisms, I think that anomalies are going to be detected in uh, biology laboratories that have to do with the influence of morphic fields of the kind that Sheldrake has hypothesized, and that then biologists, mainstream biologists, are going to have to contend with a form of what we've considered parapsychological phenomena to date. So there's multiple avenues through which I think mainstream scientific research as it approaches the technological singularity is going to validate psi phenomena in a way that's really unprecedented. The other point that I wanted to make that has technological singularity and UFOs is that in a way, the epitomizing technology of the singularity is the capability to produce a controlled singularity. So, you know, the technological singularity is a metaphor. It's a metaphor that comes from the idea of like a black hole. And we know, based on, you know, various research that's been done, one good book on this is Nick Cook's The Hunt for Zero Point. Nick Cook was a journalist who wrote for Jane's Defense. So one of the, the top uh, defense uh, industrial uh, journals in aerospace. I'm sorry to interject. Did you read? He wrote a biography on Ingo Swan. Are you serious? Nick Cook wrote a biography of Ingo Swan. Wow. 
All right, I will try to move that to the top of my list, toward the top of my list. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I would love to read that. So he wrote this whole book, Nick Cook did, Zero Point Energy. Uh, and according to him, since the 1950s, there's, there's evidence in old newspapers like the New York Herald Tribune that uh, companies like Lear, Martin Aircraft, and others were working on zero-point energy, in other words, electrogravitic propulsion, as early as the 1950s. And that for some reason, and they were giving statements to the press about this, it was as if they were going to be rolling these anti-gravity craft off the assembly line within a few years, and then it goes dead silent. And you know, there's been all kinds of speculation about why that would have been the case and might have approached these people, you know, explained to them that they can't move forward with this, at least in the public. And then, of course, we know that Martin Aircraft wound up merging with Lockheed and becoming Lockheed Martin. And then, you know, Lockheed's one of the CEOs of Lockheed shortly, Ben Rich, shortly before he died, claimed that we have the technology to take ET back home, quote unquote. In any case, I think one thing that people have lost sight of in this whole discussion of zero-point energy and why that technology is, is being held in the black world is that if you produce a controlled singularity, you're not just achieving extraordinary propulsion system, you're manipulating the fabric of space-time. A UFO is a flying time machine. That opens up a whole other horizon. Because now we're talking about the capacity to potentially rewrite the timeline of human history. And that's extremely dangerous and volatile. Okay, so I think another uh, aspect of this connection between the technological singularity and the UFO phenomenon is that the beings who are behind this phenomenon have what I describe as a fifth dimensional relationship to our 4D chronological space-time. And so if we were to uh, develop zero-point energy technology, at least, you know, in a, in a public sense, then we would interfere with, or at least we'd have the capacity to interfere with whatever way they are attempting to control the narrative unfoldment of human history. And so, so in a lot of ways, the, the achievement of zero-point energy is the pith of the technological singularity. And I think that the more genetic engineering advances, the more AI advances, the less it's going to be possible to keep ZPE in the dark. Because, I mean, once you have... Systems engineering in aerospace, and once you have IQs, human IQs enhanced to 200 through genetic engineering through CRISPR, the number of engineers who are going to figure out how ZPE works are going to be too too many to suppress. And so, the technological singularity has to be averted. It has we ha we have to, they have to basically slow our advance to the singularity to prevent us from a public development of ZPE technology, which again, to go back to my initial remarks, would give us parity with the beings behind the close encounter phenomenon. Um, so, so interesting. And uh, to that last point, though, I, I, I still have to say maybe, but all the points leading up to it, 
again, folks, undeniable. I mean, I think if you just go read Jason's books, many presentations that he's done, many books, he's making the case really, really strong in a lot of these points. I'd go back to the zero-point energy thing, because we touched on it a little bit in the last interview where you were right there taking the guy who said he had reverse engineered the Nazi bell. Let's take it to Jacques Vallée. Let's do this. So we're always going to be pushing that edge, you know, so pulling back the reins never really works, especially from a political standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint. You can pull back the reins all you want. You can't get China to pull back the reins. You can't get India to pull whoever you want to pick out there. You know, you can't have a magic wand and say, oh, we're going to dampen this down. You can try. And the other interesting thing I think that you touched on multiple times and we can kind of return to is the other thing about zero point en energy is bomb. It's a weapon. So when you talk about it's all these things have these kind of strange, almost uh, comical kind of duality to them is, is it a national security threat? Hell yes, it's a national security threat. Zero-point energy could make a nuclear bomb look like a, a firecracker in the backyard. According to Hal Putoff, uh, zero-point energy, the same kind of zero-point energy that provides for electrogravitic propulsion, allows you to take uh, a coffee cup's worth of material, let's say mercury thorium, and produce an explosive yield that would vaporize all the oceans of Earth. So that's the order of magnitude more destructive than nuclear weapons that this technology is. Well, excuse me, but are you going to put that like in the form of a propane tank in every, you know, Joe, Moe and Lowry's backyard? Like this is the worst security nightmare imaginable. We would need a completely different form of society in order to mainstream this technology. And you say global control? Not just global control, but to go back to what you were saying about Dean Braden's research, mind control. I mean, genetic, gene as what you were saying, yep. let's, we can't rely. We've already pushed mind control and we've gotten pretty good at it, but hey, let's go the next step. DNA, genetic, biological. Right. And my response to that, I mean, over, over the course of my entire corpus is that we should take a completely different approach, which is that we need an ethical reorientation of society and we need to develop a kind of ethos that uh, embraces the potential of science and technology for human flourishing and that valorizes human individuality and liberty. And so that's a potentially very violent, large-scale revolutionary struggle that's going to need to be waged on a global scale to create that kind of a society where we can have, you know, the level of trust uh, so as to be able to mainstream ZPE technology, or for that matter, so as to have a widespread cultivation of psi-ability. That's my argument, that that's the direction we should go in, rather than to allow ourselves to be engineered genetically and nanotechnologically into some kind of hive-minded Borg species. And that's what always lands you on the hot seat, Jason. <laughs> this talk like that is taking it to its logical conclusion. We do not want you to do that. But that's kind of an interesting segue into the players that we see on the field. Because it is, I don't know what to make of it. And I used to always just think everything's an op and it's conspiratorial because everything did seem to turn out that way. And now I'm starting to maybe 
understand that people like, again, to pick on Dean Radin, but I guess he kind of deserves it, in my opinion. You know, Dean is, Dean doesn't strike me as like a, an evil genius or something like that who's cooking this stuff up. He's just, hey, man, you know, he believes in the phony climate change science. He really believes in that. And he really believes, because I know, because years ago, he kind of, he kind of told me that he doesn't choose to look in the, we had a discussion about the, just when it was blowing up about the public databases, military databases that showed 600% increase in, and he was just like, you know, maybe, but I don't know. I can't go there. And then he said, you know, if we make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs kind of thing, which is just really scary. But again, here's my point before I just ramble on. What do you make of some of the players on this field who we are look to? Are they all just part of the op? Are they, you know, Tom DeLong. Okay. He was a great one because he isn't really an intellectual at all. He was this, but a total fail. He clearly an op and he fails. And then they pull him off the stage, say, no, no, not you. Then Lou Elizondo, we already talked about, but what about people like Avi Loeb at Harvard and the Galileo project? It's just, the fakery is just so stunningly obvious. Neil deGrasse Tyson is such a joke at this point that it doesn't, he, he, it's almost like, I mean, he's about at the level of Bill Nye now, where he's just kind of a joke. Gary Nolan at Stanford is a super interesting guy to me because he's when he's stealthy in American Cosmic, which is a super important book by Dr. Diana Walsh Pasolka. But then he comes out and then he's behind Fauci and all the and you just who is there anyone out there that you feel you can kind of trust? And are there people out there that you feel like are maybe accepted too readily by people? who really shouldn't be trusted? And do you care to mention any of them? It's really depressing, um, Alex. Uh, I mean, because every single name you mentioned falls into the category in my book of people who you can't trust. Again, not because they're some kind of uh, evil masterminds or something like that. No, um, I'm sorry to say it's because they're useful idiots. And also they're people who want publicity. You know, when you get the spotlight shown on you for promoting a certain narrative, there's a positive reinforcement that takes place. And as you get more and more media attention, you drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, in Persian, there's this expression, it's like become, making yourself stupid. You know, you, you like choose to forget certain things so that you can continue to get this attention and have this place on the stage. So, yeah, it's very depressing. Anybody you trust or kind of trust? Well, well, look, I mean, if you want to see a kind of uh, an index of that, just look at Closer Encounters, because I cite a tremendous amount of research uh, from people in various fields. Unfortunately, most of them are either dead or no longer active. It's I draw on a lot of researchers from past decades or in the case of, let's say, William Bramley, who wrote an excellent book, The Gods of Eden, uh, looking at war and economics, uh, looking at the close encounter phenomenon with, from, through the lens of social engineering and the manipulation of, of societies with a view to the production of conflict and the economic value of that. That book was written many decades ago. William Bramley is still around, but he hasn't you know, done any new research. So there's a lot of examples of people like that who are either no longer active or they're passed on. 
but their work, you know, had a lot of integrity and was quite rigorous. And sadly, I think that the more the subject is being mainstreamed, the more compromised the research is becoming, which, which makes sense, of course, because if you're going to control the narrative, that's exactly what you need to do. Let's talk about Mars for a minute. And it's actually kind of an interesting segue, if you will, from the disclosure thing, because, you know, I, let's talk about Mars. Then I hope to pull you into a discussion about near-death experience and extended consciousness, which is really what interests me the most. But it's so important, your work, that we have to kind of go through it step by step in order to have any kind of meaningful discussion. Because again, it's so nuanced between your data and your pre-conclusions and then your meta-conclusions, you know what I mean? So the reason I think Mars, the association with disclosure is, of course, it is like idiotically obvious they're not disclosing about Mars. I mean, can one even imagine the thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, millions of high-resolution images they have with of Mars? They don't release any of it. So we had back, you know, when we had the face and we had the pyramid, we had all these structures that are clearly uh, made by some form of non-human intelligence. And they just... They just deny all that. And now they're going to have disclosure and they go, yeah, but you don't really need to look at any of those images. So uh, maybe talk about, let's start talking about Mars, maybe from that perspective of how it's blatantly, obviously a case of we're not going to disclose anything really. So the only thing I would pick on in that, in that formulation of that question is the phrase non-human intelligence, because Mars has been repeatedly remote viewed by CIA-associated remote viewers. It, it, Ingo Swan remote-viewed Mars twice for the CIA, once in the 1970s and once again in, I believe it was 1984. And in, this, in the second session, he had, I think, five or six other remote viewers who were, of course, all independently tasked to carry out the, the, session, the project with him. And unbeknownst to Ingo Swan, at the same time, Joe McMonagall was remote viewing Mars at the Monroe Institute, also for the CIA. So neither of these groups were aware of each other. And they both reported that the people who built those megalithic structures on Mars, which are of a larger scale than anything in Egypt, including the Great Pyramid, the people who built those structures were human. In other words, they looked like, you know, human beings. And in particular, they were described as being very tall, like, you know, the height of basketball players with very broad shoulders and generally having a kind of Nordic or European look to them. And so, so they were people. Now, the really disturbing thing about Mars, which I think is behind the suppression of, of all this photographic imagery behind, you know, generally the disinformation surrounding Mars is that there's scientific evidence that some kind of a nuclear war took place there. I cite uh, Dr. John Brandenburg's research uh, in Closer Encounters with respect to this uh, thesis. And she had the opportunity of spending several days with Dr. Brandenburg where I got to engage him personally on this subject. And, you know, he is a, a scientist who's worked with NASA on the Clementine project. He also did some work 
at Sandia National Laboratory, where there is a lot of focus on nuclear weapons development. And so one of his colleagues at Sandia looked isotopic analyses that Brandenburg had in his possession, uh, isotopic analyses of samples from two locations on Mars. And this colleague just as very casually and bluntly said to him, somebody nuked them because it appears that the levels of xenon-129 and I think maybe one or two other isotopes that you find at Cydonia, and I think the other site was Elysium, at these two locations on Mars, you have isotopic ratios of xenon-129 that are modified from what they should be in exactly the same way as we find at thermonuclear test sites on Earth. And he was able to estimate what yield of nuclear explosion could have produced something like this. And he came to the conclusion that it would have required basically an empire state building's worth of our highest yield thermonuclear weapons. And lo and behold, this radiological signature is at exactly the place where we find all of these megalithic ruins. So paints a very dark and disturbing picture that people on Mars, and here's the real kicker, apparently more than 100 million years ago, wound up annihilating themselves in some kind of thermonuclear war. And then you put this next to what Joe McMonigle saw at the Monroe Institute doing remote viewing of Mars for the CIA, and you get a really chilling picture because McMonigle said that these people, after they faced the destruction of the Martian ecosystem, the basically failure of the Martian biosphere, they came to Earth and they found an Earth that was not habitable by humanoids, an Earth where there were, there were incredibly violent storms. There, there was all kinds of floron, gigantic flora and fauna and giant beasts, constant electrical storms, massive volcanic activity. And long story short, they came to the conclusion that they would have to terraform this planet in order to inhabit it. And I make an argument drawing on, on all kinds of research about anomalies on the moon. I make an argument in Closer Encounters that these Martians that McMonagall was viewing got to the Earth from Mars and then proceeded to terraform the Earth using what we call the moon. And that the moon is some kind of basically artificial satellite that performs a variety of functions and that initially was developed as part of a project to alter the biosphere of the Earth to render it habitable for humans. So, so I mean, this is mind-bending, but I think that it's, it's why there's all the secrecy around Mars, namely because Mars at one point was an abode for a human civilization. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a ton to unpack there. And again, folks, Closer Encounters, go read the book and appreciate the case that Jason is making here. Because it's not like off the cuff kind of remarks, a ton of references in there. And again, I'm going to push back on some of the conclusions, but absolutely essential to have the, the data points that an intellectual, a philosopher who's looking at it from all these different aspects would put on the table and say, I have to make this 
consistent in some way. Otherwise, it's it's meaningless. If I just talk about it in this narrow way in terms of nuts and bolts, that doesn't get us anywhere. And that's what's really wonderful about this work. And with that, I'm going to kind of plant in your head. I'd love for you to circle back at some point and talk about then what Mars means as a element of the disclosure project, because I think it is often left, it is always left off the table, right? So they, the Senate subcommittee, they didn't say, oh yeah, in the Mars photos, yeah, don't forget about those, you know, those will be in the mix too. So it's almost, I don't know, are they redirecting us towards the craft and towards the other stuff for a purpose that they have to not talk about this other thing, which would be an interesting, let me pause there. And then I want to pick up on Brandenburg. He's been on the show, McMonagle, been on the show. And I think there's some really, really important stuff to talk about with uh, both those guys. But first, what do you think about that? You Two got things it. to say about that. One is that people like Avi Loeb and other uh, mainstream scientists who've become involved in this conversation, Michio Kaku also now has accepted that the UIP phenomenon is real. People who are very esteemed mainstream scientists tend to want to put our point of focus on some distant star system or perhaps even another galaxy as the point of origin of these UAP. You know, they, they want to basically perpetuate the narrative that we're being visited by some kind of extraterrestrial intelligence that is located at a great distance from the Earth. Hold, hold on. Can, can I pause that for a second? Because I... I believe that the evidence for that is pretty strong. So if, before we get to that, and we can hash that out, do you think it's curious, though, and you, you're saying that it is, but isn't it curious that Mars never comes up? Mars never comes up. It'd be so simple. I believe we have all the photos. I mean, just release the photos. It's, it's not like, you know, we have, oh, it's big. We have to gather. You know? We got all the photos. So, look, I don't disagree with you that we could we could be being visited by ETs from distant star systems. If you go by the Drake equation, I mean, you know, the galaxy, let alone the universe, should be full of advanced extraterrestrial civilizations. And it would be odd if our solar system weren't visited by some of them. But I think the problem is this, that people in the CIA and the DOD who've been looking at all of this since the 1950s have realized that the majority of UAP encounters involve a civilization local to our solar system and a civilization that is not, it, it, it's not alien. Okay, ET, yeah, Mars is extraterrestrial. If people come here from Mars, technically they're extraterrestrials. But what the remote viewers saw on Mars, and by the way, what the remote viewers like Ingo Swan also saw on the moon are people and, and people who, in a very disturbing twist, happen to look a lot like Nordic Europeans, the so-called Nordics of so the close encounter phenomenon. And so I think the reason why Mars isn't discussed is because if we were to look at the data we have from Mars, it would become painfully obvious that the close encounter phenomenon is a question of the internal relationship between two factions of humanity, humans who have had a civilization that goes back further than we can wrap our minds around and who were responsible for 
you know, what our myths remember as Atlantis and so on and so forth, the culture that seeded all of these megalithic ruins around the world. And that's a really disturbing thing to have to deal with because it's one thing if you tell people, okay, there are these advanced ETs coming from, I don't know, Zeta Reticuli, or they're coming from another galaxy. It's another thing for you to, and they're abducting people and they're carrying out mutilations and so on and so forth. It's another thing for you to tell people there are these other humans and they see themselves as on another level than us. And they believe they have the prerogative to so massively interfere in our lives on an individual and a social level. And by the way, folks, they've been doing this for millennia. Well, that's a whole different narrative to, to face people with. There you're dealing with of the classic form. And you're creating, by, by making such a disclosure, you're creating conditions for effectively a slave revolt, revolt or a liberation struggle where, you know, the, the people who are behind the veil here, who are, you know, responsible for UFO manifestations are human beings who may have, you know, greater psychic or technological capacities than us, but who ultimately are part of the same race and species. That's really disturbing. And I think that's why Mars hasn't been discussed because if we, you know, as soon as you disclose the high resolution photographs of Sidonia, the next with the space technology that SpaceX has is to go down and find out what's underneath those structures. And we're going to find megalithic human cities. Okay. And, you know, then we have to, as I said, deal with this sociopolitical problem of the relation between these two factions of humanity, these people who treat us like basically chattel or lab guinea pigs, right? And who've set themselves up as overlords and social engineers above us. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to keep plowing through this to get there, but you make some just outstanding points. Let me throw a couple of just data points on the table that I'm not going to necessarily connect, but they're kind of loose ends. One of the things about Joe McMonagle in his RV session, which again, anyone can go online and read the transcript. I don't know how this thing escaped. It's just accidental that it escaped classification, but it is probably because it was at the Monroe Institute, even though, as you correctly point out, it was under the supervision of the CIA, and he lays it all out. I don't think he exactly says that they are human, but I think essentially what you're saying is exactly correct. One of the things, though, that's interesting is he's tasked with remote viewing million years B.C., and you kind of say in the book, well, you know, maybe, maybe not, but my uh, knowledge of remote viewers, and I've read a lot, I've read about a lot of them, interviewed many of them who were in, directly involved in the Stargate program, is they're pretty precise when they go back to a date. They don't slip and slide. And the reason that's important is because, of course, Brandenburg, who's also been on the show, and as you correctly kind of point out, has the background, has the intellectual muscle. I mean, this is what he does, this kind of physics analysis of these isotopes to say conclusively hey, I couldn't believe it either. Then I looked and I said, hey, is any of the stardust that we have show any of this? Any background radiation show this? Any place else we can look where we show that these isotopes have been manipulated to look this way? And the answer is no, 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 no. The only thing we've ever seen it come from is our own darn nuclear bombs, which is really important. The original date he said on that, I think was 250 million. I think. If I remember correctly, he's kind of revised that to maybe probably 180 million. 
but now we're talking about, I don't know. I don't, if, if you want to comment on that, you can. I don't feel a need to completely nail that down because I think the broader uh, perspective that you're bringing is so, so important. I don't want to, we, we'll never know how some of these things tie together. But I, I guess that's one point. Do you want to comment on that or should I just kind of plow forward with oh, other I mean, things? I don't want to say it doesn't make a difference whether it was 250 million years ago or, or 150 million years or, or 180 million years ago. I mean, sure, but it doesn't make a difference in terms of what the bigger point is here, though. The bigger point is that we had vast spacefaring solar system wide humanoid civilization, you know, millions upon millions of years ago on Mars and it destroyed itself. And it's quite possible that the entities that did that are behind the UAP phenomena. And that's, you know, that's what the main point is that we need to wrap our minds around, the implications of that. Completely agree. Now, the other interesting thing about Joe McMonagle, and I'll touch on it here, and then hopefully we can really dive into it later, is, did you know the history of Joe McMonagle and his near-death experience? Super interesting, Jason. You'd find it just fascinating. He is a spy, like a real spy. He's in the army. He's on the East Germany, West Germany border. He's in a restaurant of a spy restaurant, like you see in movies, you know, where spies frequently hang out and have, you know, have lunch. He has a heart attack or whatever. He starts stumbling towards the door. He realizes pretty quickly or suspects pretty quickly that he has been poisoned. He collapses. He immediately leaves his body. He's outside his body. He's looking down. They get him in a Jeep. They race him. They get him to an ambulance. He has a near-death experience, and we're going to talk about this more later. He is able to distinguish between a near-death experience, remote viewing, and an out-of-body experience. And in fact, if anyone cares to look on that very important remote viewing of Mars session that you're talking about, he prefaces that by saying, you know, I really enjoyed my time at the Monroe Institute and I learned about out-of-body travel and I think it's a different tool that can be used different ways. And I think remote viewing can be best in these situations and out-of-body can be used in this situation, but different kettle of fish when we talk about near-death experience, at least in his opinion. It is also interesting to me that when he goes to SRI, Stanford Research Institute, Russell Targ, Hal Putoff, to become part of the Stargate project. I tell this story all the time because it's so meaningful to me. They pull a book out of his sealed, you know, private, super secret personnel folder, and they pull out Raymond Moody's book, A Near-Death Experience. And Joe McMonagle is like, you get it. I'm somehow, there's some kind of connection. The CIA understands it. The SRI guys understand it in this layered birthday cake of extended consciousness realms, of near-death experience realms, demons, God, angels. There's some kind of connection in these different realms. That's going to propel us into a whole, a whole different discussion, but I guess we've stumbled into it. So let's jump in. Sure. So, you know, I've read Ian Stevenson pretty extensively. I think that he has done excellent research on the spontaneous past life memories of small children. 
Of course, he's passed on now. And I think there's a guy, Jim Tucker, who's continuing his research at the University of Virginia. So Ian Stevenson, you know, was the head of, he's a medical doctor. So it would have been the psychiatry program at the University of Virginia. And for decades, he studied these spontaneous past lack recollections of small children. And I think among his most compelling cases are the ones where he correlates birthmarks and birth defects on these children to death wounds as documented in coroner's reports. But where that intersects with NDE uh, research is that there are, I mean, look, Stevenson did voluminous research. His book, Reincarnation and Biology, is like a two-volume study like this, okay? And in the, in, although it wasn't his main focus, in the course of these narratives, you do get accounts of people transition between deaths and their rebirths occasionally. And based on Stevenson's research, which, by the way, took place mostly in small towns because <clears throat> it's easy in small towns to track down coroners and to be able to correlate reports from a child with, you know, coroner's reports because people in small towns tend to live there for their entire lives and die there, right? So that's a good base. And a lot in Sri Lanka and India, as well as here in the States and Canada and other places. Alaska, he studied, you know, studied people all over the world. He has a whole book on just European cases. But my point is that he's dealing with very ordinary people, very ordinary people, okay? Not like people claiming to be Cleopatra or who have a cosmopolitan jet-setting lifestyle or anything like that. And what I found, based on looking into Stevenson's research, is that there appears to be a very natural process of death transition through what I think the Tibetans fairly accurately described as the Bardo state, and then rebirth. And this state between death and rebirth appears to have an intermingling of a dreamlike quality to it, where internal psychological projections, anxieties and complexes and concerns are intermingled with perceptions of the actual world. And Sometimes, let's say, a deceased person will fixate on either a family member or some stranger and follow that person through their life until ultimately they connect with that person to a depth of intimacy where they wind up being, you know, cho choosing essentially that person as their future mother. And, and so anyway, my point is that there appears to be a natural process of death and rebirth. And I think to some extent, traditional forms of mysticism like Tibetan Buddhism made a, a laudable attempt to grapple with that and to describe it in texts like the Tibetan Book of the Dead. All of that having been said, and going back to our earlier discussion about parapsychology and the technological singularity, I think it's only reasonable to expect at a civilization which for centuries or millennia has had singularity level technology will also develop what I call spectral technologies that are capable of interacting with human souls as if they're energetic and infor informational matrices. And so I'm not saying in closer encounters that ETs, I mean, first of all, I, again, for reasons like I just mentioned, I, I don't like the term ETs, okay, because I think a lot of these beings 
really represent another level of human civilization. In any case, I'm not saying that aliens or UFO knots or whatever are controlling the entire process of death and rebirth because there is this natural process that research like Stevenson's reveals or that a lot of NDE research reveals. But I do think that there is some evidence for interference in the process of death and rebirth on the part of these technologically sophisticated beings. Uh, and I cite a number of cases of that, drawing mainly from the research of Raymond Fowler. Raymond Fowler was the, the guy who studied Betty, Andreas, and Luca. And, you know, that's a fascinating case, the Andreasen affair, as he calls it, where you have this uh, 1960s housewife who is abducted together with other members of her family by greys who then take her to meet tall blondes who claim to be angels and who tell her that Jesus Christ is going to come back soon and that the greys are basically like they're watchers who work for Jesus and for God and that their job is to manage basically the afterlife. And she's told these things. And she sees these beings go off toward what she describes as the one, uh, this light in, that she's never allowed to, to really approach, to get closer to. But she's made to understand that this light, this one, is going to soon send Jesus back into the world and so on and so forth. And so then when you set this kind of a report, the Andreasen case, next to reports of horrendous abuse of abductees by greys, reports of greys appearing to work for the tall blonde Nordics as a kind of android robot, some biomechanical robot, and reports of tall blonde Nordics terrorizing the hell out of poor Brazilians in the Amazon basin in the 1970s, a very sinister picture emerges of entities who are at least interfering on some level in our process of death and rebirth. And just before, before you, you, know, you comment on that, one other line of evidence that I investigate in relation to this in Closer Encounters is the efficacy of astrology, which I have always found profoundly disturbing because it doesn't make any sense to me how something like astrology could work at all. You make an argument in Closer Encounters for how it may be a system that was set in order to influence human personality and society on a large scale and set up namely by these beings who also have it in their power to interfere in the afterlife, potentially also by in part attempting to determine the time of someone's rebirth and the types of astrological influence that are going to be brought to bear on shaping that person's life. Okay, super important stuff. Let me again bring people back to the book, pay attention to the book, read the book. Page 239 of Closer Encounters, Jason says, at the very least, which to me is the operative phrase, but we'll get to that in a minute, it appears that there is a psychotronic technology that allows the beings behind closer encounters to cut into the process of death, the afterlife, and reincarnation. I think we just talked about that, so there's no need to rehash that. Just as a point of reference, again, return to the book, because that's the way that that's treated. To me, again, I, I kind of say, like you, you say, like some super important little phrases there, at the very least, yes, agreed. 
I think you make the case very convincingly that there is some kind of ability and, and you're making the case one step further. <laughs> you're making the case of here is evidence of this interference. And then you're making some very well-supported speculation about how that would be a natural consequence of moving towards this technological singularity. So people can agree or not disagree with that, but you're kind of putting the pieces together again in this philosophical way that is kind of hard to, to push back against. But I will try. Because <laughs> a couple of interesting things. So the near-death experience to me, and we had a nice little email exchange about this because I, I, I've been playing around in kind of a uh, cheeky way of saying, you know, the, the only question that matters is, does ET have an NDE? So the idea being, if there are these layers of consciousness, can they be thought of in some kind of hierarchical structure? And at the high point of that structure, is there something like God? Is there something at least like a moral imperative, like a right and a wrong? So here are a couple of data points that I would throw on the table with regard to that. If you go look at the largest collection of scientifically studied near-death experiences at the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, Dr. Jeff Long, who's been on the show multiple times, and I really pushed him as a scientist because he's, he's a, a radiation oncologist, but he's also a scientist. He's qualified. He's not a, a nutty guy in the least. And the last time he was on, I said, look, Jeff, is there any scrubbing of this data, any recasting of it to make? And he's like, absolutely not. That would just, we were talking about PMH a minute ago. He's just like, clearly understands the line. Like you just cannot do any of that or the whole thing is flushed down the toilet. And the means that he's using, a lot of people don't understand. Medical surveys are kind of the foundation of a lot of medicine that we have, you know, like, are you depressed? Are you in grief? Are you all these things? We have to go and ask people. It's not like we can just stick a needle in you and measure these things. So there is a reliable way because we've been at it for so long to ask people about their experience and then have some confidence that they are telling you the truth. Here's what comes through in Jeff's work that a lot of people don't appreciate, but if you just talk to Jeff, he'll tell you. The number one experience of the near-death experience-er is love. I'm not making it up. It's not tunnels. It's not meeting relatives. It's not all those things happen, but they don't happen at nearly the percentage you would think. It's, it's, it's not a high percentage. The love thing is in the 90s. It's over the top. So I think that's super important as we kind of process it. So that that's that's one point, I guess, that I just kind of threw on the table, think about and add it to whatever you'd like to, however you'd like to respond. But the other thing that I think is interesting, because I read this in Closer Encounters, and it kind of struck me as kind of I have a different opinion on it, and that's the life review, which I think is a super import of this phenomenon as we understand it, which again is kind of in this very limited, smoky way that we're trying to look at it. But invariably, the thing that comes through in the life review is that the life review is your soul reviewing your life, re-experiencing how it fits into the connection with all the other people you've encountered. Now, that is not to say that, like, again, you're bringing such good stuff forward because you're saying, okay, Alex, fine, but here are some cases where that's not happening, where the life review is 
some freaking alien sitting there and trying to make you feel this way or that way in order to shape your soul's future direction. I'm not saying that hasn't happened or does happen, but I'm saying that overwhelmingly what is coming back is that the life review is a process that, as it's understood, is your soul examining your process of learning. I think there's a number of issues here. One is that even the data that we do have is it's a little bit all over the place. I mean, there are definite trends and tendencies, as you said yourself, there are exceptions. I mean, there are cases where the life review takes place with a board of elders who are described as sort of sagacious guides. And in one of the interviews that you did with a number of NDE researchers, which you sent to me, there was this whole description of the conductor who came into a hospital room and a dying person was trying to interact with two of his deceased relatives. And this conductor appeared to be in control of shepherding this person through the afterlife. And that kind of thing gives me the creeps. Uh, because you see, archontic entities that want to manipulate you aren't going to put you in a state of fear and terror if you want if they want you to go along with them. They're going to produce euphoric states, lower your guard, and make you amenable to suggestion. And so, you know, the risk of, of sounding like a terrible cynic and pessimist, I think it's possible for states that someone might describe, ecstatic states that someone might describe as love and a sense of being totally embraced and so on and so forth, to be produced. And one very interesting commentary on this is from Gautama Buddha. I used to, in the days when I, I was, you know, teaching philosophy, I used to also teach a course on early Buddhism. And you find in the sermons of Gautama Buddha, the Theravada, you know, the old, oldest uh, sermons of Gautama Buddha, these long passages where Gautama is talking about how the gods, the devas, manipulate people's states of mind in order to perpetuate certain fixations and delusions. And so there's such a thing in the course of, you know, yogic meditation called a dharana or a point of focus that produces a certain state of mind and brings you to certain jahanas, certain elevated uh, dimensions of being. And Gautama's point is that these dharanas do focus the mind and they can bring you to what's described as, what's the term they use in consciousness studies? You know, you know, like an elevated state of consciousness. There's a specific term for it. It's escaping me right now. A samadhi? Yeah, yeah well, that's the Sanskrit term for it. Oh. But this is discussed a lot in consciousness studies these days. Oh. Basically, an altered state of consciousness that's very ecstatic, right? And Gautama says, yes, you can produce these states through focus on ideas like Brahman. And the state of consciousness you achieve through that appears to validate the point of focus. But actually, the whole thing is a projection. And one of the things that Tibetan Buddhists are really good at is deliberately creating these projections as like mandalas and deity, uh, deities for guided meditation and so forth, which you construct and then deconstruct, and they serve a certain purpose in the transformation of consciousness. And so now that's all very positive. And you know, a part of like an individual or, you know, group spiritual practice potentially could be positive. Right. But what I'm suggesting is that imagine 
beings with much more advanced technology, including psychical technology, using the same kind of focusing and manipulation of states of mind to give people the impression that there is this all-encompassing love and affirmation and so on and so forth, which is coming from some source or one that ought to be trusted as the authorizing agency behind these emissaries that are guiding them through the afterlife. So, so but that's one thing I have to say. Now, there's another thing in an, sort of the opposite direction that I have to say that's actually a very important theme in Closer Encounters, and it's where the book ends. And that's although I deploy a scathing argument against the idea of an all-knowing and all-powerful God, not mainly in this book, but actually in other writings of mine. I have attacked that from all kinds of angles, especially in terms of the various ways in which it makes free will impossible on a logical level. Although I reject this idea of an all-knowing and an all-powerful God, and my critiques of it are in, in some ways very much run parallel to Gautama Buddha's critiques of the idea of Brahman, I do affirm the, let's say, probable existence of some kind of superhuman cosmic intelligence, which does have something like what you're calling a moral imperative, prefer not to put it in those terms, but a kind of categorical imperative, let's say. And as I argue in in Closer Encounters, this superhuman intelligence, which I call the Prometheon, the on of Promethea or forethought, uncharacterized by the quintessential characteristic of Prometheus. This superhuman cosmic intelligence, in my view, has as its categorical imperative the furtherance of creativity, innovation, and uh, basically progress on a cosmic level. This is a, a kind of, of cosmic intelligence that going all the way back to ancient Iranian writings, Zarathustra, uh, called Sepantominu, the spirit of progress or innovation. And he identified it as the chief characteristic or primary quality of Ahura Mazda, the, the Lord of Wisdom. Okay. And so they affirm that there is that kind of intelligence behind a whole plethora of close encounters that what we're dealing with here are not just nuts and bolts UFOs and you know Nordic UFO pilots or android greys who are working for them. We're also dealing with a genuinely non-human intelligence that's operating at a cosmic level and whose purpose is to catalyze further human evolution. And in my argument in Closer Encounters, I say this Superintelligence is operating at cross purposes to the people abducting and, and, and mutilating and you know, so on and so forth, mutilating cattle and attempting to deploying various machinations to basically exert archontic control over human society. That these are two counter forces involved in producing the wide variety of phenomena that we see in Closer Encounters. And I attempt to tease apart the different types of manifestations and what their source may be and which ones may be traceable back to this Prometheon, as I call it, this cosmic intelligence. So I hope that 
went some ways toward answering, you know, that question or responding. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because now you're talking about mind of God, which is tricky, right? Because how are we going to know? I don't, I don't like to call it that, you know, but a God, I suppose you could say, lowercase g, superhuman cosmic intelligence, I do think is involved in some aspects of close encounters. And I discuss it at length, especially in the last chapter of Closer Encounters. Yeah, although you're you're casting it one way, which is reasonable, and you're again consistent in the way that you do it. You know, you could kind of look at it from another perspective too, which is that take the accounts that I just said in terms of near death experience and kind of take them more directly, and also take the yogic kind of thing and the samadhi kind of thing, and even at a very basic level of meditation, which is to cease the disturbance of the mind, right? So, which anyone can do right now, you can stop thinking. And a lot of people experience in that state of meditation, a form of bliss, or at least a form of relaxation, which is counter to the idea that this mind and all these machinations and all this, this sinister stuff we have to do is really what the game is about. So without saying that, you know, that is kind of more where I come down. But again, it's now kind of a mind of God kind of thing. And which game do you want to play? Let me ask you a related question to that. How are you understanding those layers of the consciousness cake? I mean, you kind of described it maybe at the the whole cake, you know, which is kind of the God, but we do see sinister forces, you know, are they down below or up above or angels? Are we in that range? Some of these ETs look and we're going to talk about ET in a minute because I think that's the appropriate term. And I understand. I appreciate why you don't. Or again, what you said, which is really important. Let me majority, importantly, you said the majority of encounters you believe are not what would typically be called extraterrestrial, but perhaps, you know, time slip, all the rest. I mean, they're extraterrestrial in the sense that if they're coming from bases on Mars, that's extraterrestrial. But true, true. Most people understand ET to mean like from another star system or another galaxy. And right. I think. We're dealing with something that's a lot, a lot closer to home in, in a really disturbing way. And, and yes, and I get your point, really important point, but you also threw in the majority. So that's the word I'm going to pick on on a minute. But before that, I want to return you to I would this. Be, I would be devastated if there were no ETs here. You know, I'm pretty sure that there are. In other words, like totally alien beings from other star systems and so forth. Okay, that's a really important point. I'm glad you said it that directly. What about extended consciousness realms? What are your thoughts about demonic realms, what people typically call lower realms, that kind of level of influence? And then the extended realms on the positive, you know, which are the, the, de the deceased, which seem to occupy a certain realm. If you're going to go this way, which I, I don't know, I, I kind of favor that because it does seem to come through again. And then above that are kind of more, something more angelic and above that, or, you know, or, or above, and then, you know, ET somehow fitting into that. Any thoughts? Yeah, sure. To a great extent, my ontology and epistemology is parallel to early Buddhist philosophy. And it's entirely consistent with that ontology, with that, that theory of knowledge and that understanding of nature of reality to except the existence of realms or dimensions of conscious experience and perception other than the ordinary one. 
And I'm and, trying to and other than this time space too, right? Because all these are outside of time space, right? I'm trying to use language very carefully because what I do reject is Gnostic dualism of any kind. I mean, it's fundamental to my entire philosophical project and specifically my concept of the spectral revolution to deconstruct all binaries of the type of matter versus spirit and so on and so forth. I think that these categories are constructed by limits on our perception and our conceptualization, in some cases, engineered limits on our perception and conceptualization. And so I don't think that there's a spiritual world separate from the physical world, but I think that depending on what filters are operating in our mind, we are only able to perceive certain dimensions of existence that it's possible for someone in a disembodied state to spend long periods of time in other dimensions of existence. And I mean, we know from uh, hauntings that there are people who wind up remaining in a physical location for a very long period of time that seems indiscernible to them. And so why would it not be the case that someone could remain for a long time in some other dimension of existence after death and before rebirth? And I think that you know, Buddhist texts describe these more heavenly realms or more hellish realms. You know, one could transit through uh, on the way from death to eventual rebirth. So all of that makes sense to me. My problem with language like demonic versus angelic and all that, which again sets up another or affirms another binary, is that my bottom line is not versus evil. I accept Nietzsche's critique of the binary of good versus evil. One man's good is another man's evil. And if you want to read the Old Testament with anything like a conscience, you have to conclude that Yahweh is absolutely evil. If you want to think in those terms, which I don't. Well, he is. I mean, that's no question. Well, here's, here's what I have to say. I don't think in terms of good and evil. I think in terms of constructive and creative and conducive to the flourishing of the individual and the further evolution of the human person, or not. I think that the binary that Zarathustra set up is a much more, if we're going to think in terms of binaries, the one that Zarathustra set up is much more constructive than anything we get from Christianity or Islam, or maybe even Hinduism. And that's Zarathustra's dichotomy of the progressive mentality or mentality of creativity and innovation, sepantominu, versus the the constrained mentality, the constricted mind, the retarding mind, which he called Engraminu, and later in Middle Persian was shortened to Ahriman. And so this, I think, is the real opposition. And we can evaluate different dimensions of existence and the type of beings that may be operative there in terms of this dichotomy of whether they are attempting to catalyze further human evolution and the development of the person, or whether they're attempting to control and manipulate and retard or restrain or constrain in some way the human person and deprive the human person of his personhood. In other words, they're forces of dehumanization right, that are inhuman and trying to basically lower us into something subhuman that they can more effectively control. That, see, I don't see that as evil. I see it the way it's like disease or a parasite or something like that. I have, I'm very much an empiricist. I'm a radical empiricist. And so I think about these forces the way that we think about diseases or parasites in nature. They're bad for us. 
They exist. They're out there. They're part of, you know, nature, the cosmos, whatever. I don't want to be near them. They're bad for us. You know, this is, uh, this is excellent and very nuanced in a way that I think people could spend a lot of time on your work and not understand what you're talking about, because I got a hint of that that was your position, but it wasn't even crystal clear to me until this time. I kind of think there's a little bit of potential for loss in translation thing to be going on here in terms of what normal people experience, even very smart intellectual people, uh, you know, experience. So we were talking about PMH before we hit this recording because you are so fantastic and so brilliant, brilliant you are, that you have kind of, ever since I ran across your work, I was inspired to go revisit some of my beliefs, which I think is wonderful. That's what I love to do. I love to challenge my own beliefs. And I said, I have to go back. He's referencing PMH. Did PMH Atwater, the near-death experience researcher, did she really say that? And it kind of went in a different direction than I thought, but it did. And the other person I recontacted that I want to talk to you about is Mary Rodwell, because I think she's super important in terms of direct experiences with people who've had these kind of encounters. But one thing that does come out of PMH, and I want to read this because whenever we talk about evil, and I wrote a book, Why Evil Matters, which is not inconsistent with what you're saying, it, because my point was, how, how can we not talk about evil? How can we shelve it over on this side and say, oh, it's, evil is only a social construct? Okay, maybe. Oh, evil is here. It's in the Bible and scripture. That's the only way we... Okay, maybe, maybe we need to talk about it in another way. So I always like kind of the, it's so frustrating when I talk to people and I, to say what you said, I can't go there because it doesn't hit people where they live. I usually go with examples of uh, satanic ritual abuse. And I had on this woman and I always reference her on the show and she was part of the Dutroux, six years old, sold into a sex cult. Uh, a satanic sex cult, six years old, you know, so it, it, it drives everyone to go, okay, I get it, evil. I don't, I don't give a shit, you know, whatever you want to call it, that's evil. PMH had another level of this that I want to read to you because I think it's so super significant. And then we can process it given this latest kind of conversation we've had. One of the people that PMH interviews as part of the, her latest book is this woman who is born into a satanic cult. And here's what she says. I now know I came into this life to shift the consciousness of my biological family and the members of the cult. I was shown that as they performed the rituals, I was in a protective bubble and I could see that by being in their presence, their heart chakra was ignited. What was dark before now ignited to the eternal flame of their heart and their connection with the divine source. Whether this changed them or not, I don't know. And she goes on to say, I no longer have contact with these people in any way. This is, this is in some ways kind of challenging some of your conclusions. And it's kind of more where I live. Like, I don't know, I don't want to believe this like literally, but I kind of think metaphorically, it kind of hits palmed me more in a way that might be true, might explain that this state of confusion, if you will, if you're going to talk about it from this kind of Buddhist kind of way that they, I think 
that's what they say, same thing. There's no evil per se. It's kind of confusion and lack of knowledge. How does that, how does that strike you? Any thoughts on it? Yeah. Actually, I kind of disagree with the Buddhists on this. Agree and disagree. I agree with their critique of evil as any kind of absolute. But, you know, you know actually, it's not even faithful to Gautama to say that they don't believe in manipulative sort of what you characterized earlier as demonic entities because Gautama talks plenty about these. And as a matter of fact, he says that the devas shouldn't be worshipped because they're extremely manipulative and in fact, they can be really terrible sadists, you know, like Zeus on Olympus going down and raping human women under various disguises and pulling the puppet strings of whoever, he, you know, whatever poor human he wants to make miserable on any given day for his own amusement, right? So I think that that's true of uh, some of the beings behind the close encounter phenomenon. My problem with this whole discourse of satanic is that Look, Satan has a meaning, okay? It, is, it has a literary and historical meaning, which was constructed by the Bible. And when you go back to the Bible, and by the way, I used to teach them, believe it or not, I used to teach the Bible. I taught comparative religion. And you can really see this in chapter six of Closer Encounters. Chapter six of Closer Encounters is nearly 100 pages. And it's a pretty rigorous contribution to theology really go chapter and verse of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the problem with this whole discourse of the satanic as demonic and so on and so forth is that if you read the Bible with, again, anything like a conscience, like the kind of conscience that Tom Paine had, you have to come to the conclusion that from a literary standpoint, at least, Satan is the hero. When you start from the serpent in the Garden of Eden offering the fruit of knowledge to humanity and saying, this Yahweh character is a liar, to the fallen angels teaching humanity to rebel against these overlords, right? Which is absolutely the same myth as the Atlantis myth that Plato provides us with, or that you find in any number of other cultures, Mayan culture and so forth. A myth about an attempt at human empowerment and self-determination meeting with vengeance from the gods who wanted to keep us down as a race of slaves or as kind of basically a species of cab. And then you go on to the attempt to build the Tower of Babel after that, which seems to have been a second human attempt, self-determination, right? You know, we have this Tower of Babel, which was a cosmopolitan project where everyone spoke the same language and humans understood each other. And this Yahweh comes down and confuses our language and sets us all at war with one another, divides us into various warring tribes. And you just keep going through example after example. The, the Israelite genocide that took place at Jericho and the way in which, if you look again at the details, you see an account of Joshua being directly guided by the commander of the Lord's army who comes out of something like a UFO. And and the Ark of the Covenant is used as a technological device to bring down the walls of Jericho and so on and so forth. All the way through the book of Ezekiel, you, you get a monstrous image of this God who in the book of Job basically says to Job, listen, the reason that I have done this to you is because I can and I don't need any justification for my actions. And then you go to the Gospels and the devil it's in the details here. Read chapter six of Closer Encounters. Out of one side of his mouth, Jesus talks about love and compassion and, you know, non-judgment, 
and preaches communism and so on and so forth. Out of the other side of his mouth, Jesus says he's come to affirm the law and the prophets, not a dot of an I or a cross of a T of the law and the prophets will be invalidated until the judgment, at which point Jesus will sit with the elders of Israel as a judge over humanity. And, you know, he, he basically, he even supposedly had former prophets with him in this luminous aerial conveyance that he would ride around in as if it was a taxi. And his followers claimed to have seen Moses and Elijah together with Jesus. So he's very clearly identifying himself as a prophet in the Abrahamic line in service to Yahweh. And I discuss in Closer Encounters how I think what's going on here with this dichotomy in Jesus is an attempt to create cognitive dissonance and to produce a kind of Stockholm syndrome where you are, through this whole discourse of love and compassion and so forth, you are being brought to embrace your oppressor. And so my problem, to go back to your question, framing the satanic as something that has to do with child abuse, child molestation, and ritual. Uh, no, you're, the, way you, the way you framed it is perfect, right? It's this desire to control this sinister, evil kind of thing that pops up again and again. I think well, that's right God. For... See, that's the God of the Bible. And the hero who stands against that in the Bible is Satan. Now, I... I'm not a Satanist. If I wanted to be a Satanist, I would call my movement, I don't know, philosophical Satanism or something. There's a reason I focus on Prometheus because Prometheus is a positive symbol and the various episodes in the Prometheus myth and the various qualities of this archetype are all very positive. But there's no question that if you try to look at Prometheus through a Christian or a Muslim lens, Prometheus from their perspective is Satan. So, you know, that's, I think, you know, a legitimate point that, you know, you, you, you can look at, you can look at the satanic panic of the 1980s and all of these cases of abuse, some of which may well have taken place, others of which are products of hysteria. And you can allow Satan to be defined by that, or you can allow Satan to be defined by, I don't know, centuries of romantic, mystical writers like Shelley uh, and Byron and so forth, or going all the way back to Milton who understood Satan to be a Judeo-Christian Prometheus, Prometheus seen through a Judeo-Christian lens. I gotcha. It's super important stuff. I mean, we could spend a ton, a ton of time on that, and we might. We might come back and, and do exactly that because it is so important. One of the problems I have with where you're going with Prometheus and where you're going with Satan, of course I say Satan because it's where people live, right? It's where people live, what they understand in kind of a colloquial way, in the same way that we talk about ET. And sometimes to break out of that pattern creates more confusion than it does. And it's so like, be it. So be it, though. See, well, but so be it, except that this is also how the social engineers manipulate us as well. I mean, turning all the way back to why that transition from UFO to UAP, because it's so much more clear with UAP. No, it's when you change the language, you then send everyone on, on like, oh, they're talking about UAPs. I don't know anything about UAPs. Well, that's the same as UFOs. Oh, I know about you. 
So it's the same thing. So we're talking about Satan. We're talking about evil. Well, no, we're not really talking about that. We're talking about Promethean, you know, versus this and that. And it's like, oh, I don't know shit about that. You know what I mean? So there is, there's both both parts of that. If we're going to communicate and, and try and reach people and pull them into the conversation, you know, we're, we're going to have to be a little bit sloppy with the language. But yeah. you had a point on that. And then I, I want to kind of talk about the... the, the Another area of my research is Iranian studies, Iranology. I almost went to get a PhD in that instead of in philosophy at one point. I was really seriously debating going into Iranian studies. And so I've written this book, Iranian Leviathan, which is a whole tome you know, on, on the history of Iran, but also an interpretation of Iranian philosophy and, and theosophy. And it's very clear when you look at the conditions under which the Old Testament was written, the, the, the Tanakh, the entire Tanakh, including the prophets, that the concept of Satan was derived from the Zoroastrian or Mithraic idea of Ahriman. As I was saying earlier in our conversation, Ahriman has all the qualities of Yahweh or of some of these manipulative, you know, ancient Hindu gods, Indra, whatever, or Zeus in the Olympian pantheon. And the force opposed to Ahriman, namely Ahura Mazda, has all the qualities of Prometheus. In fact, the name Ahura Mazda means Titan of Wisdom. And there's all kinds of ways in which the association with fire and so forth, it's clear that there is a, a cultural connection between these two images, these two icons. And so it's, it's, an, it's a travesty for people to call Ahura Mazda Satan, right? I mean, or, or rather to brand, you know, to like, okay, if Ahriman is where the idea of Satan came from and Ahriman is the God of the Bible, well then, how are you then framing Satan against that? That is Satan. Good That's point. the original Satan. Good point. Okay, so, so I'm trying to deconstruct this false narrative. That's what I'm trying to do. And I'm using tactics of the kind that Nietzsche used. Very provocative tactics to break people out of a false narrative, to get them to shift their perspective. And I'm well aware that I'm not going to reach 95% of people. I'm not trying to. That's yeah, not my no, slogan. So, so we're, we're, let's come back to that on, on, on another episode because you have so much to bring to the table there that we need to talk about. Because, But I'm going to tee up a couple of things just so people know where I'm coming from. If they listen to a lot of the shows, they, they probably do. But one, like you talk about Constantine, but you kind of get the story wrong. It's not that Constantine had a vision and put a cross on the shields of his warriors before they took the bridge and recaptured Rome. They made that fucking story up. He, what he did was he was never Christian. He wasn't about that, right? So, and the way we know that is you go look at the Archer Constantine, which is still in Rome. There's no crosses on that. They're all taking the bridge. There's no crosses. There's no Christian iconography anywhere on it. So what that points to is that there's strong evidence that the Romans were super smart about social engineering way back, and they're doing it all over the place. So most of this stuff comes from Josephus. Most of the history we have, not just my history, your history, our history, all the history comes from Josephus. Go to Josephus 4.5.6. I always point people to. There's Josephus saying, you want to talk about PSYOP? Josephus says, hey, I'm with this guy. I'm with Titus. And he is the he is Messiah. 
And you know what? I'm Jew. I'm super Jew. As a matter of fact, he says, Josephus says, I'm super Jew. I'm, you know, above. I was teaching the rabbis. I was at the temple when I was 14 and they were down at my feet listening to lessons. So I know this stuff. You know what? You guys, all of us, we misinterpreted the word. The word was that this guy, Titus, is really going to be the Messiah and get on board with this. It's a direct psyop to try and and the only reason, so it doesn't work for whatever reason, but why would we think that Christianity isn't just a reboot of that psyop? To me, it seems like that's the best evidence for that's what it is. You make a good case for that, and you have a lot, the, the Mithrian, the Mithras, and the cult, and you know all that kind of stuff. So we're, I'm going to tee that up, and you can add a little bit if you want to. You can add as much as you want to it, but I think that's like another show, because the other part I want to bring into that show, if I'm just going to tee it up, is what you importantly bring up, and I am, for the most part, ignorant of, is when you start looking at other cultures, then the whole thing shifts again, because you made a great point, which is like, yeah, Alex, I get it. we got to talk to people where they're at in terms of Satan. But when they totally get it reversed, and we have to kind of call time out, that doesn't really qualify either. So will you come back and we do that show? Oh, absolutely. So so basically you're talking about the construction of Christianity. Like and, and, and all those all all the religions that so influence and how they fit in this spectrum of what we're we're talking about. A religion and so comparative religion and social engineering. Absolutely. It's a fascinating subject with which much of my work is concerned, including like Iranian Leviathan. At length I get into that subject there. Uh, okay. So, so let me try and wrap up this one because there's a couple oh, of really one yes, yes, of course. Constantine, my source for taking seriously the report of Constantine and his soldiers seeing cross of light in the sky was actually Jacques Vallée's, I think it was his last book, the one he wrote with Chris Aubeck. It's called something like Wonders in the Sky or whatever. And this is one of the historical UFO accounts that he includes. Now, I don't know. It could could well be that the whole account was manufactured. And, and you know, I, I should add to that because that would be a, a, a point to add to this entire interview that we talked about. So what? So and, and I'm so glad you're able to take that pushback like before when I said, hey, maybe it's this way and that way, but it doesn't really. When we were talking about the Mars and it's a, a million years, 108, 180 million years ago. Well, certainly that's important. But the bigger picture is this. And then we're both able to agree. So many times I hear these discussions and it totally gets off off the rails because I'm a, I'm a philosopher i'm not a ufologist or a theoretician of it doesn't matter all that much to me like exactly. you know the parameters of one or another data point i want to make sure i have good sources i have a lot of several references in here but i'm after using these databases of empirical research for the purpose of elaborating certain philosophical concepts it's the concepts and the ideas that I'm after as a philosopher. So, yeah, I mean, sure, we can debate the data. Beautifully, beautifully said. And I hope people appreciate the difference in that and how that kind of discourse just doesn't make its way onto the stage now. Like I said, everything is either, everything is either siloed or opt, psyoped, or some combination of both. I shouldn't say everything because that's it. But so much of it is, you know, when, when do you hear people just say, yeah, you know, I think uh, it's. Uh, I think that was a social engineering project. I think Jacques Vallée is wrong. 
I guess that could be a possibility. We can still move on with the discussion because it's really not material to the main point. Here's what is real to this discussion we've been having, and I want to throw on the table because I'm really interested in, in where you're going to go with this. So have you heard of the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrials and Extraordinary Encounters? Free. Ray Hernandez. Oh, okay. I was about to say I hadn't, but I have heard of Ray Hernandez, and I was familiar with Edgar Mitchell's old foundation, but... This, no, I've I've heard of Hernandez. I'm familiar with uh, what was the older foundation that Edgar. Oh, oh there's Ions. He was originally Ions. part of Ions, and that's Dean Radin. Is... Dean Radin works right, right. So no, I'm not familiar with this specific project. So Ray, who's been on the show a couple times, interesting guy, lawyer by training, uh, IRS lawyer. Interesting enough, careful what you say. He starts having some extraordinary experiences, including some experiences in his house that involve, I thought very curiously, and I think approaching very verifiable where his wife is having an experience, a close encounter experience downstairs with the dog, and they're going to be taking the dog to be put down the next day at the vet and comes down and the dog has been healed and is, the, the light has healed the dog. And his wife, who is a Catholic, is like, this angel, the angel cured the dog. And the dog is running around the house and the dog lives. I don't know how long, but the dog lives a long time. Interestingly enough, also, see, and a lot of stuff kind of supports where you're going, where you're taking these kind of experiences. Ray walks halfway down the stairs and then is told, psychically, there's nothing going on there. Go on upstairs and go to bed. So he has the thought, this isn't coming from the outside. It is his thought, right? Planted think that he should go upstairs. And that is what he does. So this is the first experience in a series of experiences he has, uh, some of which are shared by like neighbors who are not family members. Other are shared by people who are family members. This eventually leads him to the doorstep of Dr. Edgar Mitchell. And he says, look, we have to study this. I'm a scientific guy. I'm not only a lawyer, I'm going for my PhD at Berkeley. We need to study this scientifically. They set up a, a scientific survey. I've interviewed a couple of people who are responsible for that. Bob Davis, PhD, smart guy. You push him on the methodology used in the, in the scientific survey. And he's like, hey, push all you want. Here's the data. Here, here's why it's valid to do it this way. Here's how you ask the questions, all that. These guys are not slouches. What comes through in their survey of people who have had these extraterrestrial encounters in a lot of ways support some of the things that you're saying, although they are heavily leaning towards the extraterrestrial. They're saying, no, they specifically came from Pleiades. No, they yeah, should yeah, because the tall blondes told them that. Why would you believe? Uh, well, hold, hold on. I mean, you, again, you can say that, like in the same way that you can deconstruct the near-death experience and say that. But I, I go back to, you know, all you ever said was majority, right? So majority. So I'm just picking on the percentage. You know what yeah. I mean? And I'm saying it doesn't necessarily even have to be a majority for everything you're saying to be true. It, 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 like it could be, it could be 5% yeah. uh, Martians and the whole thing could still it can, be, make... it can be both and too. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. We could have beings coming here from the Pleiades legitimately 
And we could have people passing themselves off as that. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. If you look, this is this is another subject that I treat, you know, fairly substantively in this book is the 1950s uh, contactees. And, yes. you know, they all dealt with these tall blonde people. And it's clear that the tall blondes they were dealing with were incredibly deceptive and manipulative. And uh, it's also clear that there's an undertone of racism and fascism going on with George Hunt Williamson and George Adamski and these characters. So, you know, does that mean that there's really nobody here from the Pleiades? No, maybe there could be, but it could, I mean, that's how psyops are run. Disinformation is, you know, taking something true and spinning it a certain way or presenting yourself as something that is legit, but that you're not, you know? Perhaps, but yeah. that is the advantage we have on someone who using proper methods and you would, since I'm hitting you with this, you would have to investigate and see if you agreed with their methodology. But when they're broadly sampling a lot of people, then you can get more confidence that they are not just being kind of ushered into one way of thinking. Similarly on the near-death experience, and I got to bring this up because I, I talked about it last time and I brought it up in the emails to you. You know, you look at Gregory Shushan, the Oxford guy, or is it College of London? I can't remember. But looks at cross-culture. It was Shushan. You sent me the interview. I, I so near-death experience. So again, this is a kind of a, a good scientific methodology to tease out. Are we looking at some kind of mass deception? And it kind of looks less like that when you, the thing starts showing up across time, across cultures. You go, okay, I would lean a little bit more towards, I would lean. I would lean a little bit more towards that data up at a, in terms of credibility. So with that, let me throw the last piece on that pile there. And that's the interview that came about because of our first one. And that's my re-interview with Mary Rodwell, who I've talked to for the third time. And Mary Rodwell has had forensic hypnosis. Before that, a registered nurse in, uh, in Australia, not a wacky person. You know, she's a registered nurse, qualified and all that, gets into hypnosis, starts having uh, sessions, healing sessions with people who've had encounters, right? And her data over time collected now 3,000 cases. Again, a lot of it supports exactly what you're saying, but some of the conclusions she has are not. One, many, many species, many, many agendas, many, many places. So even within species, multiple agendas, which why wouldn't we expect that? Just looking at our own species. And the other thing she finds is multiple instances over time, and we're talking a huge time frame, of genetic manipulation. I think she said at least 15. So we can ease off the idea that they came down and they zapped our gene. No, it's ongoing. It's this, it's that. It's different levels of sophistication in their technology and in their interface with us. To me, that about that as well in closer encounters, the genetic multiple phases of genetic manipulation over you know millions of years. But what she's adding to it is from multiple sources, so it's not. Yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me in the least. You know, I'm just going after parsimonious theorization here. So there is a Occam's razor type of approach here, where I'm trying to get as neat and parsimonious explanation as possible. That doesn't mean that the data isn't a lot messier than that. 
And, and again, my primary motivation in how I've structured the meta hypothesis here is to use all this empirical data as raw material for discussing certain philosophical ideas. That's really how I'm approaching it. Okay, I think it's much more than that. I, I think it does all that, and it does. You can see it as a, as a very serious hypothesis for uh, exactly close encounter phenomenon. The, the book definitely works on that level, and on that level, all kinds of subclaims can be critiqued and tweaked, and variables can be removed and replaced, and you can have a functional theory of of close encounters, no doubt. And that was true of a lot of the parapsychological material that I dealt with in. Prometheus and Atlas. Prometheus and Atlas works as a treatise in parapsychology, but ultimately what it is is a philosophical work. So that's my deeper aim and ambition there. Likewise with this. That's an incredible wrap-up. I mean, that is an incredible way of stepping back from your work and uh, kind of casting in a way that really helps us understand it. Because I'm tempted to ask you to expound on that in, in, in this way. Why choose because you do like to poke, you know, you do like oh, yeah. provocateur, no doubt. Provocateur, <laughs> extraordinary. Why, why drive that one theory all the way through like you do? What are the advantages to doing that? In the structure of scientific revolutions, Thomas Kuhn talks about the utility of the exclusiveness of paradigms. So the whole point of the structure of scientific revolutions is to show us that scientific theorization takes place in the context of these structures, these frameworks that are political to a great extent, namely paradigms, and how this limits our perception and it causes us to exclude a lot of data, marginalize a lot of data, right? An interesting point, and of course, what I'm advocating from Prometheus and Atlas onward is that we move to a post-paradigmatic science. We move to a science where we recognize the theories are models and tools. They're not objective representations of reality. And so it's perfectly fine for us to work with multiple paradigms simultaneously, which appear to contradict each other. Because it's not about coming up with one final paradigm that perfectly mirrors reality. It's about being able to do different things technologically based on different paradigms. You know, like if you want to develop atomic weapons, you use Einsteinian physics. If you want to build zero-point energy and use it to power the world, you have to use a different paradigm. It doesn't mean one paradigm is right and the other one's wrong. It means you can do different things with different toolkits. All of that having been said, there's this one remark that Kuhn makes in the structure of scientific revolutions uh, where he says that, you know, this exclusionary closed structure of the paradigm is very useful for scientific progress. You put out a very tight theory where all the pieces fit together and it's a very definitive approach to handling a database, and then you let others challenge it. And it's in the dialectic between one theory and a rival theory that scientific progress takes place. So that's partly why I did what I did. Because, you know, the more coherent and cohesive my theory is, the more effective someone else will be in drawing contrasts with, through elaborating a rival theory or rival hypotheses then dialectically lead to an advance in knowledge. Beautifully said. So Jason, what's going on in your world now? What are, what are you working on? What are you interested in? Have you moved away from this topic or is this still a major 
point for you. Since you'll move away from it, I, I, uh, I'm finishing up. Uh, I've written some fiction also. My book, Faustian Futurist and uh, Uberman, the sequel to it, deal with the close encounter phenomenon in the context of fiction. Of course, philosophical fiction. You know, I mean, I'm writing fiction like Sartre wrote fiction or that Nietzsche wrote Thus Spoke Zarathustra um, or, or Camus' writings, for example. It's still philosophy, but in the form of fiction. And I, I'm finishing up another very slim volume this time of uh, sort of philosophical science fiction. And it does deal extensively with, you know, the close encounter phenomenon, the entities behind it. Beyond your books, how can people support your work, support you? Do you do Patreon? I have a Patreon. I can send you the link and you can link it in the description. That would be great. So I do have a Patreon, but I don't have like a member exclusive content or anything. I've advertised my Patreon in videos that I've done, you know, at the end of the video. But the main place I think people should look is actually my YouTube because I put out content there more regularly and, uh, you know, all my interviews are there and so forth. So, yeah, my YouTube, the Prometheism YouTube, that is, and then the my webpage, jasonrezogiordani.com, which has links to my books and social media and so forth. Well, fantastic. It's been absolutely great having you on, and I'm so glad that I kind of hooked you in for a third appearance, which we'll have to schedule. I'm looking forward to that one, too. Likewise, that's, that's a subject that's been close to my heart for many years.